Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hello, everyone. I want to thank our listeners from all over the world and the listeners who came out in large numbers in the following countries over the last few weeks. Norway, Ireland, Canada, Australia, Germany, Brazil, Russia, and of course, including the United States. Thank you so much. And for today, we have Wendy Baker. Wendy Baker is a former member of the infamous Los Angeles-based cult, The Source Family, a commune that began in the 1960s by Jim Baker, a.k.a. Father Yod. The group was funded mainly by The Source Restaurant, a vegetarian cafe popular with celebrities such as John Lennon and Marlon Brando. And I actually remember driving by it or having my family drive by it. Wendy is the author of the award-winning memoir, My Name Was Mushroom, My Life as a Teenage Runaway in the Source Family Commune. She is now an entrepreneur running a Malibu, California insurance agency alongside her wonderful employees and her husband of 45 years, Bart Baker, the son of the Source family leader, Jim Baker. In her spare time, Wendy volunteers at Women's and Children's Shelter in Oxnard, California, and she's passionate about helping women tell their stories and is especially excited to help teenage mothers succeed in life after navigating her own struggles as a 16-year-old mother herself. Her memoir is available now on Amazon and in local bookstores. Here is Wendy now. It is really, really, really wonderful to have Wendy with me today. I am so happy to have you tell your story. I remember growing up in Los Angeles, hearing about the Source family and the restaurant. And so it was part of my own history as well, not personally, but just driving by and just hearing the stories and wondering about this fantastical kind of place and person who was running it. And so this sort of brings things full circle for me. And I haven't been able to hear from someone who experienced this and the charisma that, you know, that this person seemed to have and the hold he seemed to have over so many people. So I can't wait to get started hearing about your story. Can you start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about you? So my name's Wendy Baker. I wrote this book about my experience in the Source family from the age of 14 to 19. A little bit about me, I am married for 45 years to Bart Baker, who is Jim Baker's biological son as well. So that's a little twist. Uh, We live in Malibu, California. We have three adult children. Uh, One of them, the oldest, was born in the Source family, and her name was Stardust, and her name now is Jamie. Um, We have four grandchildren four grandsons. And let's see, I loved writing my story. It was uh, very healing for me. I learned a lot more about myself and how I 
handled the whole situation, but putting it into perspective today, it made me a better person. I think that I have a nice insight of what goes on in cults, you know, from my childlike angle. Okay. I'm wondering also when you're saying that it made you a better person, can you talk more about that? Well, when I was young, I was very, very shy. I was very insecure. I had, I call it an eating disorder because I think I was depressed as a child. I grew up in a very um, unloving family. I just was such a different person. The route that I was going, I'm guessing I probably would have ended up being very depressed, you know, just very insecure and low, low, low self-esteem. So by me joining um, the Source family and the journey that I went on, you know, I was able to become stronger by my experiences. I experienced a lot of love. I um, was able to speak up at some point, not right away, but, you know, I started to get a voice um, late, more so later on in the Source family. So I, I, I grew up in a spiritual commune. Basically, my high school was spiritual boot camp. So I, I got to escape from the drugs and the, the sex and the, you know, the out of control direction that I was going, living in, growing up in Hollywood. So that's how I, how I feel about it. And also my diet. My diet was terrible as a kid. And so I really believe that, you know, I learned a lot about nutrition, health, how to eat properly, at least, you know, in my belief. Okay. So I'm curious just about what life was like, kind of a day, a day in the life um, from morning till night. Can you give us, I'm sure different days were different, but kind of a typical day. I woke up at 4 a.m. in the morning with child or without, it didn't matter. That was the routine. Uh, Jump in an ice cold pool or ocean, whichever was available. Uh, do my exercises, take a shower, a cold shower, only a cold shower, never a hot shower, uh, get dressed, uh, make my um, coffee, our special magical coffee, um, then gather my spot with my uh, my mat, my blanket, whatever it was at the time, and put my spot down in the in the morning meditation room. and get ready and sit down with the rest of the group. So different people would show up at different times, but basically we all had to be ready approximately like 4.45 a.m. So 4.30 is when we all would sit down and gather our space and get prepared. And so we would start chanting. And so different intervals of chanting, depending on what when you got into the living, to that meditation room, and it was beautiful. It sounded like angels singing. It was such a high. It was it was just so pure, so amazing. And then uh, at some point um, in the beginning, he was called Father. He would come in, and he would walk through with one. It was only one woman at the time in the beginning, and he would go and sit down in the front of the class, and then he would take us into a deep. Uh, morning meditation that consisted of hatha yoga, um, chanting, 
looking within and 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 killing the negative that was within you and bringing in the light which was the positive and that lasted for you know a good half an hour maybe longer just depends and then once we were all uh finished with our meditations together as a whole family then he would start a sermon it was different every day all the time sometimes he would talk about what was going on with him and in our, in the family. Uh, sometimes he would talk about his time in the war. He had lots of great war stories. Sometimes he would talk about his previous life with his wife, Elaine Baker, and the three boys that he had, which was Bo, Bart, and Ben. And then sometimes he would talk about his women or like whatever was going on at the time, you know, in the family. And there'd be a lot of laughter, a lot of shooing. I don't know if you got that in my book. There was there was a part in there that everyone would say, Shh, you know, just when something was so heavy and we got it, you know. And even at my young age of 14, 15, and 16, as esoteric as he was, I totally understood what he was saying. And it's kind of interesting. I, I don't know if everybody understood him, but but I really did understand him. Could have been my intellect. It could have been how quick I was. I don't know. But it was fascinating. And it was always entertaining every single morning. After our uh, morning meditation class was over, we would all gather up our stuff, our blankets, mats, and we would put them away. And some people would go to get ready to go to work at the source. Uh, some people would stay behind and had house chores. Some people had children, so they would, you know, go attend their children. But everybody was always busy. It was never like a downtime, ever. You know, lots of action going on. We have lots of projects. And this was basically in the beginning at the mother house. That was the typical routine. And then the routine changed somewhat as we moved around, but it was very much the same. And, you know, our days were pretty busy. And then come early evenings, uh, the house was with 140 plus people in whatever house we were in. It was quiet. That was the quiet time. People would either meditate or practice their craft or whatever. But a lot of people went to bed early, like eight o'clock, because we got up so early. So it was pretty quiet. So to eat dinner, you know, everyone ate at their different times. I always would eat like, we only ate two meals a day. That's it. No three meals. So we just had our breakfast and then our dinner. And then we would go to bed and start the process all over again with lots of drama in between. <laughs> that, that'll give you somewhat of an idea. Yeah. I, I'm curious also to go back to the the yoga and the meditative practice to kind of get rid of the negative, bring in the light, bring in the positive. You know, for some groups, you're able to define on your own what is negative. And other times it's defined for you. And so I don't know in this group if you were able to really have thoughts that were your own about that, or if there was something that was being portrayed as negative by the leader or by the group that you needed to get rid of. And the reason I ask is that that for one particular group that just this week with a with a client, you know, she was talking about 
uh, and she's talked about this publicly, so that's why I can share this. But she she said that what was negative were attachments. That was the big thing for the group. And it really was to detach you from, you know, the people outside, basically your family, so you wouldn't miss them. Also not getting so attached to your own children sometimes that you could just be attached to the leader. Like the the idea would be fed to you because it worked for the leader. So I'm curious how it was here. Looking back today, yes, I do believe that the negative was what the leader told us was negative. I don't think it was what I thought was negative. Attachments definitely was a negative. We didn't have, the, it wasn't negative to be attached to your child. That's definitely was not one of them. Right? I don't think I could have handled that. But family, uh, what we called the outside world, the Piscean world, the Maya, that was definitely a negative. Ego was an attachment, um, was a negative. You know, things that I don't consider consider negative today, they thought was negative. And there's definitely that pattern uh, within our group as well, for sure. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because these are these subtle, sometimes not so subtle, but kind of methods of influence, of indoctrination that I think people don't realize are. Uh, and why you've come to believe a certain way or have a certain emotional sense about something being good or bad. And is that something you would have thought of on your own? And is that also healthy for you? Or does it work better for just the group? It's an interesting thing. But I am happy to hear that you didn't have to detach from children because that is pretty typical in groups. And yeah, it is devastating for everyone involved, not the leader, but everyone else. Okay, so that sounds exhausting. How come also only cold water and cold showers? Well, you know, when I was a child in this commune, they made us say that it was good for your nervous system, which it is. But I think it might have been a it was expensive. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I was my, thinking, actually. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah. you know, I mean, to be honest with you, like, I would not have been in this cult past young adulthood. Like, I was a kid, and it was exciting and fun and adventurous, and for, and I could do it. But as soon as I turned 18, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, a lot of this stuff, like, really? But because of my circumstances, I stuck it out all the way to 19. And I, and I really 100% believed in everything that I was told and that was happening. So, but definitely some of it was ridiculous. And the cold water was one of them. Uh-huh. Okay. What, so what else would fall under that category of being ridiculous? Not having an ego. I mean, you know, like that's ridiculous. Seeing the outside world as Piscean or the Maya and not good people, like, you no, know, that's ridiculous. You know, like really? What else? And then the inner relationships that he eventually evolved to, that you know, a woman could have several men, you know, with them if they want, or a man could have several wives. And then everybody's just like having sex with everybody, and there's just like you know, all the hurt and the the stuff like that. I today, no, no, no. I've been with my husband for 45 years, you know, one man, 45 years, and his son. So it's kind of like at first, I didn't even want to marry his son because I thought, oh my God, you must be similar to your dad where you have to have all these different women all the time. 
but he, he was the opposite. He was far from that, but it took me a while to be okay with that. So that, that was ridiculous. Also fasting to the point that you're like, you're so thin, you know, that you're unhealthy. You know, when I left the source family, I was God awful thin because my diet was so minimal towards the end. And so that, that's ridiculous. You know, it, there were, we went through different phases of diet. First, it was a vegetarian diet, which is fine because you could have eggs, you could have dairy, nuts, and things like that. But then at some point, we evolved to vegan and no sugar, and it got a lot more intense and strict and ridiculous. To me, that's just my personal feeling. I mean, some people in the Surf family may still be on that diet, though. Yeah, so that was ridiculous. Um, you know, when I think of more, I'll let you know. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And, you know, I think also about a shift in diet that when it's so restrictive, it can be a problem, especially if you're pregnant or if you're trying to nurse, um, if you're needing to do manual labor. And also, if you don't have a lot of body fat and you need to take cold showers, I'm sure that is pretty painful at times because you don't have you know, you don't have enough of a buffer, you know, and I'm sure it's very, very cold. You can get really chilled, actually. And so, and yes, when the body has been starved to a certain degree, your brain does sometimes tell you to store up just for safety and people will start to gain just to be able to, you know, feed their body in a way that the body needs and the organs need and the brain needs. And it also, you know, I know this from, um, helping with a hot lunch program at a public school that, you know, if kids don't also have enough throughout the day, it's hard for them to learn. It's hard, hard for them to sleep. It's hard also to manage your emotions when your your body's hungry, which is sometimes the reason that some of this is done. Yeah, I, I believe that that is the reason that we were sleep deprived and we were hungry and weak. There's a weakness going on. Yeah. And, and, and to, to that point about nursing mothers, and pregnant women. I was pregnant at 16. And I was super thin when I got pregnant. And about seven months into my pregnancy, uh, father said, you know, you're anemic, you look anemic. So he actually made me eat chopped liver and dairy products because I was, I needed more, you know, nutrients for the baby and for me. And I thought that was interesting. And there was a period of time where a lot of us were pregnant and nursing that we had to eat a differently. And he picked up on that and he did have to do that. But I don't know, some of the women um, lost their babies. Um, it could have been lack of nutrients. I don't know. I was too young to really know the answer to that. But there were some losses. There was definitely, it was a very sad situation. Very sad. W were you able to get medical care when needed? No, that's okay. That's another ridiculous. Okay. Listen to this. Um, he did not believe in medical, the medical world at all. Everything is healed naturally. You read in my book about the part when I had the boil. Okay. So that was all done naturally. That's like insane. So like today, I, no way could I have done that, but in, I gave it up to him. I thought he was God pretty much and he knew what he was doing and thank you God I survived it. But 
his philosophy was you don't go to the doctors unless you break a bone. So, but even that is bullshit because at the very end of his life, he might've broken a bone and, but he, how would you know if you don't go to the doctors? So it was a little, it was a little um, contradicting, but no, we never had medication for children, babies, mothers, anybody at all, no medication. Now I'm, I believe that the older people in the family had possible access to things, but I being young and pretty much devoted, you know, they were my parents pretty much. I had no medical um, anything. Right. Which is endangerment, especially for kids. Right. Uh, And there are a lot of things that do happen when people are pregnant that are not able to be avoided, but there's so much that is with prenatal care and supervision and all of it that that makes it even more sad. I'm sorry for the people this happened to. I know. Me too. Very sorry. Yeah. And I wonder also about education, because here you were as a teen. So what was that like, if anything? Well, there was no education, spiritual education only. Um, not even the little kids that were there. There, It was ridiculous. Yeah. For me, luckily for me, I was way advanced, you know, in education in high school. So I left in the 10th grade, but I had enough credits and I passed the general education exam. So I was in all AP classes. I was pretty smart. So I was way beyond anyways by 10th grade. I had, you know, at least a foundation of education. And a lot of people that joined were had already graduated high school. Um, some people have already graduated college. So it was really just the teenagers like myself and, you know, my other really close friends that we joined together um, that they lacked education. But some of them went back to school when we when the Source family dispersed and they got their bachelor's degrees. Some got their masters and some even got their doctrines. So fascinating. But, you know, the whole cult lasted five years, six if you want to stretch it. So if it continued on, like some of the other cults, I think that could have been a real issue. Yeah. Yeah, definitely can be. I mean, I work with so many people who were kept from getting an education or were plucked out of being, you know, in the middle of high school or college, and then came out and had a hard time getting back into feeling in sync with people their age and people in the world. And so it really does set people off track, which is also a shame. I'm, of course, I'm curious about when it ended and also you leaving. I also would love to know first, though, about him. What's your sense of him? I mean, I guess what what it was at the time and now in retrospect. So at the time, um, Going into the Source family, he was very magnetic. Uh, There's something about his blue eyes. It was they were they were so pure and so loving and so unconditional. And um, I really, I think I was looking for a father. And you know, he was he looked like God to me or Jesus or something. And he was so he was just so um, honest and real to me. And I just got sucked into the web of that. Um, I felt that way pretty much throughout, that he was like a father image to me. I I didn't want to be one of his women or or anything like that. Um, 
I didn't even find that to be appetizing at all, like some people did. Now, I've learned a lot about him. Um, You know, he passed away before the family dispersed. That was kind of like the end, pretty much. I think everybody was there for him, pretty much. Not everyone, because some people, as you know, have written books and had a documentary, and they're still living like that. They still feel that way. And I look at them, I'm like, okay, yeah, all right, that's your thing, whatever. But um, I know him better than most people that were in the family, mostly because I knew him before he started the Source family, because I met him with my husband at the time when we were 12. Uh, So before that all began. So I knew what kind of person he was then, which was amazing. And then I learned a lot about him after he passed away, because I married into his family. I married his son and his other brothers and his wife and, and his sister. And I know so much about him. So I have a different take of him today. He was very um, addictive. He had a very addictive personality to sex. He had an addictive personality to be in control and to have power. But he, um, his upbringing as a child, it was rough. He grew up in the Great Depression. Um, his mother and father separated, divorced, which is unheard of then. He grew up in poverty. Um, his only way out was to join the Marines, which he did. He became a jiu-jitsu expert. He had a second-degree black belt. Um, he taught self-defense in the Marines. He actually worked with Jack Lane, started that whole movement with him. I mean, he was amazing Like when he did do those things. Uh, so, of course, I don't know if you feel like you're at liberty to talk about how his family feels about him or his son, and if they have the same viewpoint or if it's different. Well, I know that my husband was very hurt, deeply hurt that he pretty much abandoned him once he started the Source family. Not at first, not the first year, but going into the second, when he moved, when we all left to go to Hawaii, he pretty much abandoned, you know, his biological children. It was very hurtful to all three of them. Um, I think that my husband adored his father. He admired him. He loved him. And I think up until the age of 15, he was amazing to him. And my husband looked up to him in so many ways. Um, And I don't think he's ever really dwelled on the negative part of him. I think he was blown away by what he did, you know, in the source family, um, what he created. It was pretty, it's, it's been pretty interesting um, that I married into the Baker family, you know, and then I was in the commune part of the, of his life as well. So his mother would ask me questions all the time, like what happened in the source family. She was intrigued that her husband, you know, did that. He always tried to get her to join the family and he always tried to get his biological kids to join, but they never did. Hmm. I wonder why, how come? I mean, he was with other women. He was married to another woman. She's not going to like leave her prestigious life. And also I don't think they felt that that was their, that was their calling. I don't, they didn't see him like that. You know, she saw him as her husband and my husband saw him as his father, not sharing him with hundreds of people, you know, giving up their, all the material possessions and attachments to be in this commune. Wow. 
I'm sure that's very hurtful. It also is interesting because while being a good person in so many ways, he hurt the people who mattered most, right? The ones whose whose feelings he really had the most responsibility towards, um, especially children. Uh, and so I just wonder about making those decisions because that, that feels hard to get past as the child of or even the wife of this person who has gone on to want to be with other people and other people's families uh, and create a whole new life, it you feel discarded. And that's that's hard to get past, you know? I think my husband has some emotional scars from it that he's been working on throughout his life. You know, it's definitely left an impact. No, no question that that will do it. That will do it. And so I'm wondering about then when you left and what that was like for you during that transitional time? Well, it was very difficult for me to leave emotionally. And I just, my mind was just going through so much. And basically I grew up and I thought I I didn't love my daughter's father anymore. I think it was more like a crush or like, no, I think I really loved him. I'm not going to say a crush. Um, I truly loved him, but I think I realized that he was not going to be a lifetime partner. And I didn't, I didn't believe in him. I didn't trust him and I didn't feel safe with him. So I had to kind of leave him and I ran away from him because he wouldn't let me out of his sight. He wouldn't let me leave. And I think he knew I wanted to leave. So I, one of another family member named Sir Knight in the family, he rescued me in the middle of the night. I just basically packed up, you know, just a diaper bag because my daughter was not even two yet and a few things. And he picked me up in the middle of the night in Lanikai and took me to his place on the big island. And I just left without telling anybody or any, you know, I just, I had no way of saying goodbye. I just, I couldn't do it, you know? So that's how I initially left. But then things happened um, in between that, that are in the book. But then when I really left and I moved back to LA, I ended up moving back in with my mother and my daughter because I needed a secure, safe place for her. And my entire, my, my entire focus was I need to take care of her. I need to make myself a better person. I need to, you know, do something because I'm going to be her provider and her sole parent. And that was my 100% focus at the time. It was very difficult to transition. I still, for many years, did not cut my hair in any shape at all. I didn't wear makeup. I still was a vegetarian. I still held on to so much because I, I couldn't quite you know, you just don't go from doing all of that and then going into being part of this, this world, you know, it's just, it's a process. I mean, I couldn't even sleep in a bed. I slept on the floor. So it was pretty, pretty intense. It took me years to come into my own. I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to get a degree. I've always wanted to go to college. So I did. I went back to school and my mom and my sisters took turns watching my daughter so that I could go to nighttime school. So I went to school at night. Um, I never finished. Um, it just, my life just, just didn't work out that way. 
but it would have been a goal of mine. I would have loved it if I had the support. Transitioning from that world to this world was, for me, very difficult. It was, it was traumatizing, actually. So let's talk more about that. And, and I'm happy to hear with as much tension as there was in your family of origin that they came through you know, to a certain degree, really jumped in and helped, which is really good to know, good to see. And you can also wonder about, while there are things that actually did happen that were not okay when you were growing up, as you we just talked about briefly, there there can be more there to the relationships and what than what you're kind of allowed to experience when you get involved in a cult. And sometimes people don't find that until they leave and they're shocked that their mom is able to be their mom. And there's sisters, you know, siblings can jump in and they really actually can have these attachments because these relationships are meaningful and they care about you, you know? And I'm glad that, I'm kind of glad that for a lot of reasons, the group didn't keep existing. So you could go back to really knowing that you had a family. Yeah, I think the group did exist still. um, But I think I was able to separate. I just, I I just didn't want to be that, do that anymore. Um, I feel like my mom, she didn't know how to be a mother. She was, she basically had four kids right away from an abusive alcoholic husband. And I feel like it was just like, talk about a, a intense situation. She had the most intense situation, uh, stuck with no support with four little babies, four, three, two, and one. Although I don't agree with, you know, she didn't rise to the occasion and become a mother when we were little and young and needed a mother. Um, I understand why she was the way she was, but as an adult, she handled it better. So, but I wasn't an adult until I left the source family to find that out. But she was, she was a mess. I mean, like a real mess. Like even when I moved back with her, it was very difficult for me. I really had to eat, eat shit to say, because she was a chain smoker, a drinker. Her house smelled like cigarettes all the time. I had to really just kind of suffer through it, you know, just to have that safe environment, a shelter for my daughter. It is amazing what you do for your kids though, right? You just jump in and sometimes you jump back into the fire just to be able to have something, a place to stay. Um, and it's interesting to hear about not cutting your hair and not wearing makeup and sleeping on the floor. Yeah, there were things, clearly there's so much to the rules and the, the changes and, you know, what you came to be used to or think was better for you, a better way to live. Some of the things mattered, some didn't at all, but they were seen as better ways. Like, it doesn't matter if you cut your hair or not, you're still the same person, you know? Also, we we didn't watch TV for five years. We didn't read a newspaper. There, I guess the whole uh, Watergate thing, when I knew nothing about it, I was in the jungle. I mean, like I, I was literally historically denied any kind of understanding of what our world was going through for a good five, six years. It was like a blank. Right. During those years, too, that you emerge in the world, right, with more you know, young adult eyes and wanting to know about the world. And yeah. Wow. Okay. So when you were saying that it was, it was traumatic though. So then there were heavier things for you that you needed to deal with or conquer or that were triggers probably. So maybe we can delve into those. 
You mean after I left the Source family? Yeah. Were you saying it was traumatic in a lot of ways? Well, you know, my family, they were very argumentative. You know, I was used to being more in a loving environment in the Source. So I came back to like a lot of yelling and, you know, it was very rocked me, like shocked me. Um, Also, um, just the interactions, the way people interacted, the fakeness and the, you know, it was just really hard for me. I mean, in the Source family, we hugged a lot. We were, we looked into each other's eyes. We, you know, we were close in, in a very spiritual way. So coming into society, that was not the way it was. And it was difficult. Like I found myself sometimes staring at somebody like to see who they were, like looking in their eyes. And yeah, it freaked them out. <laughs> I was like, so I had, to, I had to stop that pretty quickly. Just And then also I was wearing white still and Birkenstocks and whatnot. Like I really was standing out and not fitting in and just Yeah, it took so long for me to transition, really. It shows about the intensity of the time, too, because you were there for what, I mean, it is a number of years, but it wasn't 20, 30, 40, you know, but you can see how powerful the messages were um, that it was really hard to undo them after that time. And in order for you to be able to fit in, and I think still be able to live a life that felt genuine, you know, that you're talking about the fakeness, but that's not part of your kind of ethos, right? Like that you were going to need to find those relationships and those moments that felt really real. Yeah. Yeah. It was intense. Yeah. Wow. I, you know, I also wonder just about thinking of two things. When someone seems to have marketable skills, like he seemed to with being a jujitsu person with having, you know, someone who was teaching martial arts or self-defense. I mean, he could have done something with that. He had a restaurant, music, all these things. So you wonder why someone starts a community where they're the father of a community, because that says something to me about a need that was going untapped by all these other things. A lot of cult leaders don't have a lot of marketable skills. Like I say, they wouldn't survive in the wild. Like they need the people to do the hard labor to run things. They need to siphon cash off of people in order to live. But there were things that he could do. What are you thinking of him? How do you understand why he would need to create a whole family, a whole community uh, that was his? You know, I I often ask that. Um, I think that the way he created the philosophy with these women, they, the women encouraged him and the, some of the other um, disciples that he had when he was teaching yoga um, in the temple behind the source, they encouraged him to start this family. I don't think he thought of that on his own. I think they are the ones that just said, you know, we need to start our own, you know, ashram our own temple and take off our own sect. I really feel like there was a group of source family members before that, the, the, his disciples that really pushed him into it. And then he just kind of created it as he went along. I think it was just a big movie for him, just something entertaining and fun. And, you know, he got bored easily. I don't think it was a well thought out 
plan. I think it just kind of happened. That's what I think. Now you ask somebody else in the source family, and I'm sure they will say something completely different. And you know, they, some of the a lot of them are living his philosophy today, and they're doing. They have never changed. They wear the same clothing. They eat the same way. They meditate. They meditate to his photo in front of a pyramid with incense going and candles. They still are stuck, or maybe it's not stuck to them. It's what they've chosen. They, they're still doing that. But I really don't think it was um, planned. I really don't. Interesting. It's such an interesting thing to think about how he may have gotten caught up in it, just like the followers did. Like, this is a really exciting idea. Let's all do this. It's a, yeah, it's an ego thing. He, it, was, it, it fed his ego. It, it made him feel big and important and special. I mean, this man would walk into a room and he would light up that room. You would have to stop and wonder who the hell is that person. Wow. Okay. So it is so interesting. Uh, I think it's also interesting that people are still following him and meditating to his likeness and you know and yeah it could be that they're stuck it could be that this is what they feel they're choosing but I really wonder about a life like that like what are you doing you know right like are you moving forward in your life are you just staying put stagnating you know I don't know after a long time what people have to show for all this time and all this devotion because it can feel like you're not Propel, like your life had a had a very important, I think, and good trajectory after you left. With people still in it, I don't know if someone were to say, you know, what have you what have you done? What have you accomplished? And I don't know what they would say. So that's my bias that I would think that that would be sad. I agree. I don't, I don't get it. I don't know. I mean, one one of the girls and the women in the family, you know, made a documentary of the Brotherhood of Stars. Did you see that? I have no, I need to see that. Yeah. You have to see that. It's a pretty a pretty accurate depiction of what we went through. Pretty it's pretty good. You know, that that she's devoted her life to that. And then I know a couple of people have written books, you know, about their they have a total different experience than me. Yeah. And I would say about 50% of the family members have moved on and become something and have done great things. Uh, The other 50%, we've lost, we've lost a lot of family members. They've passed on to either cancer, drug, drug overdose, uh, committing suicide. Yeah. We've lost, we've lost some, uh, quite a few family members. So we're not, we're down to, about 70% that are left. One of the people that have passed away recently, well, there's two of them, was Starman, my daughter's uh, biological father. He passed away a couple months ago from cancer. And then um, Robin Baker, who was married to Jim Baker in the Source family, she passed away also a couple of months ago. Yeah, so we are losing, they were in their 70s. Oh, but still, that's... Relatively young. And so you wonder about that. I'm sorry about your daughter's loss. I don't know if she felt connected, but she had no relationship with him whatsoever, which was sad, but yeah. 
That's right. So I wonder about that. And I know we just have a few moments left, but you do hear about suicides and you hear about drug addiction and you hear about alcoholism. You hear about people who have their demons and they're not either they weren't getting the help that they needed or they thought this would be the answer or they thought this would keep them healthy. And there are so many people who suffer in this way within cults or after having left them. What's your understanding from your perspective about the suicides or the drug addiction or the losses through drug addiction? So it's even beyond addiction. And sort of how do you understand that in connection with the group? Well, there haven't been that many of those. Um, I think the people that were in the source family that committed suicide were, before they even joined, had big depression. I don't really know why people, you know, commit suicide. It's so sad. Um, I don't know enough about them because once I left the source family, I only kept in touch with a few people. So I don't know how they progressed in their lives and what they did. The drug addiction people, there was quite a few of those. They, when they came into the source family, they were drug addicts. And then, of course, no drugs were allowed in our, fa- in our commune. So they became sober. And then as soon as the family dispersed, they went right back into drugs, right exactly where they left off. So, and maybe even worse, you know, like during the family that they were in there, they were healthy and, and well and doing good because they had structure and discipline. But the minute it was over, they got, most of them got back into drugs and very few of them have survived that addiction. I lost a very close friend of mine that I went to school with and I brought her family and she became a drug addict after the family and she died of a drug overdose in in her forties. And she was such a beautiful person. I don't know what the heck happened there. You know, I, I see with suicides, especially the ones that I hear about where people have been involved in cults, um, I, I see it in this way, that um, sometimes people are feeling very anxious about their lives, feeling depressed, and then they get involved in something hoping that it is the answer and hoping that it alleviates their feelings or giving gives them a sense of purpose and meaning to their life so that they can handle the feelings that they're feeling like life still feels worth it. And they're also hoping through meditative practices, et cetera, that some of these emotions will be able to be abated. That sometimes happens, but only temporarily. It really, You need other kind of help for something that's more serious. And if you're kept from it, which was probably happening in the group, because if they weren't big on medical care, they're not going to send people to a psychiatrist when needed. So I think people are kept, they were kept, I mean, it's another malpractice, right? They were kept from getting the help that they needed when they really were depressed. And there were probably other reasons given to them that it wasn't something chemical or it wasn't situational, but that they needed to then change their diet or they needed to do something else to make themselves feel better, which is not the answer. So people will sometimes commit suicide when they think that they've tried the thing that they thought was going to be it, like nothing else could ever be. And then it wasn't, it didn't make them feel better. And people also commit suicide when they think there aren't other choices that, right, there isn't somewhere else to go in their lives where they're still going to feel okay, especially if the outside world is so demonized, 
right? Then who can you go to and who can you trust? And your resources become really too limited. And then you don't know that you could get any help anywhere. But people, they feel kind of backed into a corner will often do that, will consider committing suicide. And it's it's tragic. I understand it, but it's tragic because there are always other resources and it shouldn't be for a group or a group leader to bar people from getting the help that they need, you know? Um, so I know we only have a minute left. So tell us, first of all, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for for sharing so much about your life, about your experiences there for giving us a visual on on a day in the life and then also the challenges of leaving and um, where can people find your book and all the other things that you've been doing so i i used to do a lot of book signings i'm not really doing that anymore but you can get my book on amazon um, or barnes and noble stores and then there's also books in independent stores but you can always ask any bookstore if they can get my book and they all have access to it. Uh, so those are the best places to get it. I'm in the process right now working with the director. They want to make a movie of my book, but it's moving very, very slowly. I guess that's the way it is. But the writer's strike and the actor's strike, it seems to really slowing it down. But so that's that's a good possible thing that's in the pike for me. Other than that, you know, I do lots of podcasts and I Enjoy them very much. And I, you know, it's a way for me to express myself other than the book, um, you know, to talk about and break down things in what I went through. I know people are fascinated by that time period and I get that. So I'm trying to, you know, keep up with that demand. And other than that, that's, that's really what's going on. That's great. I wish you well. And you and your lovely life that you have developed, which is fantastic, you know, with your family, with the next generations, with your business, with all of it. And uh, very nice to talk to you today. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. One more thing before you go. Every once in a while, people will come on to tell their cult stories. And while I haven't necessarily met their cult leader, I feel like I've met him a hundred times. I feel like I've come across that kind of personality, both male and female, where there is this kind of idea about them where they are somehow greater than human, where they kind of float around where they're charming, charismatic, larger than life, and seem to have wisdom and knowledge of everything and want people to listen to them and want to be able to come across like they are spiritual beings and want to be able to come across like they're very wise and reasoned and reasonable and are able to guide people to live the life that is an ideal kind of life. And there often is a kind of gentle countenance about them that draws people in and makes people feel safe. And Father Yod, Father Yod, however you pronounce it, is someone just like this. 
I mean, he was really larger than life, really tall, big guy, very athletic, and had hair that was long and a beard that was long, and it looked like a lion's mane. But what is also true about these personalities is that from behind the scenes, they are far from perfect. And from behind the scenes, they are not actually healing people from a life that they could be having out in the world that wouldn't be right for them, that somehow would be less than what they deserve. That in fact, in these people's presence, people's lives can be lovely, but also can be quite miserable with a lot of damage being done to them, with no responsibility taken for the damage that's done. When people walk around with their head held high, like Father Yod did, and kind of you can tell in photos of him, there is also this part of that kind of personality where people just feel unencumbered by guilt and responsibility. They're not plagued by regret, by insight, looking at what they've done to others. I've met a few cult leaders in my life, and they're very similar. And as soon as you call them on something, that's when they kind of glide away, kind of floating above the ground, and they just leave the conversation because it's not one they want to be having. Or they will turn on you and get tense, get intense, make you wrong for asking the question, make you wrong for questioning them. It does not surprise me to hear that Father Yod was a follower of Yogi Bhajan, who has been brought up on so many charges, who had that same idea about his greatness, his own personal greatness. And people needed to cater to him and believe that he was the one who could guide them in their life, even though there are many people who have been quite traumatized by Yogi Bhajan. And we've done some podcast recordings about it. What I find really interesting too, in terms of not taking responsibility here, is that Father Yod fathered a lot of children and at the same time had as part of his philosophy, as Wendy talked about, becoming detached from the family. And she said that was one of the negatives, that you were supposed to get rid of attachment to family. So you wonder why he's fathering children so that they could be alone in the world, so they could not have a parent who's necessarily connected to them or a family that's connected to them. What was really unique about talking to Wendy is that she had this attachment, she had this connection. And so there are some exceptions to the rules. There are people who are going to, force the point that they know really is meaningful to them and their conscience. And it's great when that happens. But even though also there was a lot that I remember talking to someone else who was raised in the group, talking about women, talking about men and women being equal, still it was a highly patriarchal group. And the women could not ever make the final decision on anything. So it's an example of do as I say and not as I do, but over and over and over again. And so, as always, if you find yourself in a group with someone who is talking about they want to support you and your power and your rights and your abilities and foster that, but 
you can't make a decision to a great degree without their approval. Notice that. Notice the contradiction. Notice how this is a person who seemed to care about fathering other children, extending his line, creating families, but often taking people away from their families outside the group. Always notice. Always notice the contradictions. Always notice what doesn't make sense. Father Yoda is an interesting character. There are many others like him. And it's very important to not be drawn in by that level of charisma, to not be drawn in by someone who towers over you and has a lion's mane and looks so regal. Notice what they say, but especially notice what they do. Take good care. Talk to you soon. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.